0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. So we have the opportunity now to open up the Word of God to 1 Samuel. Samuel, we've been going through the series that we're calling Waiting for the Kingdom, and we're in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And if this, if this is your first time here, if you're not totally caught up on what's happening in 1 Samuel, essentially what's happened here about 1,100 years before Christ is that the Israelites have gone into battle with their enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines have captured the Ark of God, this gold-plated wooden chest. They brought it into their nation for a victory tour. And things have gone very wrong for them because plague has struck. And now they've got a big problem on their hands. So let's read the word of the Lord in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And we're just going to dip into a couple of verses of chapter 7. Listen to the word of God. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords, So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put, it, and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us, it happened to us by coincidence." Well the men did so, and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors, and the cows went straight in the direction of Bethshemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The ark came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord." And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with the great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of kiriath Jearim, saying, the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of kiriath Jerem came and took up the Ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the Ark of the Lord. From the day that the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. It was Bruno who first told me the story of the Goy- Goyanya accident one of the greatest radiation disasters since Chernobyl. And it begins on September 13th, 1987, in an abandoned hospital in Brazil. There had been a hospital there, it had moved, and in the process of moving, there had been a court case, and everything in that hospital was frozen as the court dealt with how the property was going to be, was going to be handled. And one of the things that had been left behind was a radiation teletherapy unit. And at the core of the unit was 93, 93 grams of cesium chloride, a salt made out of cesium-137 isotopes, highly radioactive, and this was used to treat cancer patients. And the hospital staff had, in fact, alerted the National uh, Atomic Energy Authority months earlier about this very dangerous unit that was left in the abandoned hospital but the court refused to allow the radiation unit to be moved from the place. Their one concession was that they allowed a single security guard to be posted in the hospital. And on September 13th, 1987, a day when the security guard was absent for some reason, two scavengers broke into the hospital. And they began to dismantle this unit, and they took with them the steel and lead-plated cylinder in which this radioactive substance was housed. They took it away to their shop and began to dismantle this piece of medical equipment. Two men. And after several days, the first of the two began to feel quite sick, he began to vomit, he was having severe diarrhea, and he had a burn on his hand the shape of the aperture of this unit. And the doctor told him it was probably something he ate and he recommended he go home and rest. His friends persisted in dismantling this unit. He eventually developed tumors on his right forearm which later had to be amputated. But he got far enough where he was able to pierce the aperture with his screwdriver. And inside he saw a beautiful deep blue glow emanating from the cylinder. That was as far as he got. He sold the unit to a scrapyard. And the owner of the scrapyard actually managed to completely dismantle this unit and was able to take out the 93 grams of cesium chloride. And he brought it home. It was glowing blue, and he thought, this is obviously something very valuable, if not supernatural. And he brought over his friends and neighbors to admire and even handle this substance. He sold it to a second scrapyard, but the day before he did, his brother took some of this substance home and spread it on his garage floor. And his six-year-old daughter was in the room. She was sitting on the floor that was covered with his substance. She was rubbing it on her skin, and some of it fell on the sandwich she was eating. Well, she became terribly sick, she was brought to a hospital. Uh, when the finally international a team of international medical experts came, she was locked away in an isolated room in the hospital, and the hospital staff were too terrified even to go in there and help her. September 13th was when the hospital was broken into. It was only September 25th that the girl's mother realized something is going on with this substance. Everyone is falling sick and she put it in a plastic bag and brought it to the hospital on the 25th, 15 days after this substance was let loose in this Brazilian city. There was a massive panic. 130,000 people went to the hospital to get inspected. Turned out 249 people had been uh, exposed to radiation. Four people died, including the girl and her mother. In fact, when the time came for the girl to be buried in a fiberglass, lead-lined coffin, 2,000 people blocked the road to the cemetery, wielding rocks, refusing to allow this girl to be buried in their city. They were so frightened of this mysterious, death-dealing power, and hundreds of homes were bulldozed, personal possessions were destroyed. It was a huge disaster. And something similar has been happening in Philistia. The Philistines have brought this ark into their territory, and there's this strange, deadly power seeping out from the ark, spreading plague and tumors and death wherever it goes. Seven months, this ark is traveling around the cities of Philistia, and finally, Very belatedly, the rulers realize we've got to do something about this Ark because we can't handle it anymore. And they summon their diviners and their priests. They need some expert, technical help in the realm of the religious and the supernatural. And these priests and diviners have some recommendations. They say, this Ark, obviously it needs to go back. But using the power of sympathetic magic, you need to make some golden tumors and golden mice to sort of soak up and represent these deadly diseases that are spreading in our land. And you need to put along a guilt, this is going to be a guilt offering for what you've done. You have committed sacrilege, you have violated the holy, you have poked your fingers into something supernatural you don't understand, and you need to send this mysterious ark back where it came from. And there is obviously some resistance, as you can imagine, because the last thing these leaders want to do is take the humiliating step of admitting that they cannot handle this Ark, that the Ark has not only defeated them, but also their gods, and send it back in shame to the people of Israel. And the diviners tell them, don't harden your hearts like Pharaoh did. He hardened his heart against God He refused to let the people go, and he had to take the full menu of all ten plagues before he let them go and then was destroyed. We've got these tumors, and we've got this mice. Let's end it there before God makes total fools of us and send this thing as far away from us as we can. But there were doubts and hesitations, so they propose a kind of oracle, a way to settle a yes-no question to the God. We're going to make it as hard as possible for this ark to go back and only in such a way that it is clearly the hand of God and only the hand of God sending it back. Because there's still the small possibility that this thing might just be a massive coincidence. Plagues do happen. Mice do ravage the crops. Perhaps there is a purely natural explanation for this. So just to make sure, here's what we, here's what we advise you to do. Take two milk cows. They've just calved. We're going to leave their calves back in the stall. We're going to put, hitch these cows to a cart. They've never drawn a cart before. And then we're going to see what happens. If, in fact, they go the nine miles uphill to the Israelite border town of Beth Shemesh without wandering into the field or turning back to their calves, then we indeed know this is a God thing that's happening here. And that's what the Philistines do. And the cow set off, and they're mooing away as they go. They're not happy to be leaving their calves behind. But it's as though the ark of God is behind these cows, driving them onwards against their will, back to the land of Israel. And they go to this border town. They enter into a field where the villagers are harvesting. And can you imagine these Israelites have given up this ark for lost? National disaster has beset them, and as they're cutting the wheat down, they look up, and to their utter amazement, they see the ark of God, this wooden box with the cherubs, these angels with their raised wings overshadowing it, trundling alone into their fields. And far off on a hilltop are the five lords of the Philistines watching what happens. And these men, there's great rejoicing, they offer sacrifices, They're singing and dancing, you can imagine, as this symbol of national strength and the presence of God is returned to them. And then the Lord, satisfied, this is the Israelites' problem now, go back to their homes, glad to wash their hands of this terrible ark of God. And then things begin to go wrong for the villagers of Beth Shemesh in the midst of their celebrations, their gladness, their joy that the ark has returned, God strikes down 70 men of the village for the sin of looking upon the ark of God. Not looking into, as some of your translations might say, but looking upon the ark of God. And this party, the celebration, the dancing Ends and terrible tragedy strikes their village as the hand of God falls on these villagers of Beth Shemesh. And this might seem like a cruel, arbitrary, random act of God. But if we read back in our Old Testament, we discover that Beth Shemesh was a village that belonged to the tribe of the Levites, one of the cities that was set aside for this tribe that had no land of their own. In fact, not just a Levite town, but it was specified for the clan of the Kohathites. And the Kohathites, if you flip back, let's see, to Numbers chapter four, had the specific task of handling the holy furniture in the tabernacle. These guys are specialists. And in Numbers four, verse 17, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron saying, let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment lest they die. It's one thing when Brazilian scavengers are handling a strange substance they know nothing about. And it's one thing when these pagan Philistines are handling an ark that they don't understand. The Philistines by the way are using diviners which are an abomination to the Lord. They're putting these carved images on the ark and tumors and mice were both unclean and they're putting the ark on a cart on which it did not belong. They're breaking all of the rules but of course they don't know the rules but now things have changed because this Ark of God is coming to a village where the people should know the rules. These are the radiation technicians now who are handling the Ark. You know, technical manuals are not the most exciting books to read. But if you've got to enter a nuclear facility... That book now becomes a matter of gripping interest or it ought to be as you read very carefully the procedures you must follow if you're going to emerge from that building alive. And the one thing these Kohathites ought to have done is made a detailed study of the law of God. They had a special calling from the Lord. They're not ordinary Israelites. They have been called to handle the holy things of God. And either they haven't bothered to read it or they're ignoring what they should have known. The Ark was meant to be kept within the most holy place. And only one Israelite was permitted to see that Ark and only once a year, the high priest. When the Ark traveled, carried by a Kohathite behind and before, it was to be shrouded so that no Israelite could see it. And now the Ark has come. On this cart, and these Kohathites, in their joy, leave behind the reverence for God that they ought to have been trained in. First of all, they sacrificed two cows, and only male animals were allowed to be sacrificed to the Lord. So there's a violation right there. And instead of immediately shrouding the ark, you notice they put it up on this stone for public display. And then they are looking upon the ark. It's an unseemly gaze. And if they had smartphones, they would have pulled them out and started taking pictures and videos and posting them on social media. There's no reverence here for God. Their joy seems to be a matter of somehow possessing a trophy themselves that the Philistines had been forced to return. It's joy, but it's not mixed with the fear of God. And the radiation technicians mishandle the holy presence of God and 70 of them are struck down dead. And then, in the morning in this village, in their grief, they ask this question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Who can handle the terrifying presence of God. We need to get rid of this thing. We want this ark as far away from us as possible. And so they send a message to the residents of Kiriath-Jarim, about eight miles closer towards Jerusalem, inviting them to take the ark. You notice they don't tell the whole story. They leave out the part of 70 of their own guys being struck dead. The ark is taken away to Kiriath-Jarim. A priest is appointed. And for a long time, the people of God are lamenting after the Lord. They have the presence of God, but they are not able to handle that presence. The holiness of God is a terrifying thing. And it is not something human beings are equipped to handle. And it turns out that God is just as dangerous to Israel as he is to the Philistines. He's not a trophy. He's not something you can keep in your back pocket as you laugh at your enemies being destroyed. The presence of God is a very dangerous thing. A hundred years ago or so, the German scholar Rudolf Otto made a study of the experience of the holy in different nations and cultures. The book was called Das Heilige, the idea of the holy. And he noticed some commonalities among people's experience of the holy. And one thing he found was that people always had a very difficult time putting into words their encounter with the holiness of God. For some people it was a placid contemplation of divine beauty and for others it was an experience filled with with horror and shuddering. But what all these experiences seemed to have in common was a silent trembling, a feeling of naked creatureliness before, before what? Before an awesome terrifying mystery that is the experience of the holy and it is not a comforting experience and the question of the old testament is this who can stand before this holy god how can the people of god possibly handle the presence of someone so awesome and so terrifying And it's not just the realization of our smallness and creatureliness. It's the realization of our sinfulness. There is a TV show Michelle and I sometimes watch on YouTube called Hotel Hell. It's the Gordon Ramsay show, kind of a follow-up from Kitchen Nightmares. At the climax of the show, he invites everyone who's who's staying in this very badly rated hotel into one of the hotel rooms and he turns off the lights, and they all put on special glasses. And then they realize these sheets have not been washed for a long time, and there are stains and mysterious fluids on these sheets, and everyone rips their glasses off in disgust. Michelle always makes me fast forward through those horrifying scenes. You will never stay in a hotel again after seeing this. And you know, in the dim light of our own existence, as I look at myself or as you look at me, I seem pretty clean, clean enough to get by. But when the light of the holiness of God shines upon us, we realize there is grime and there is dirt and there is deep, deep evil in our own hearts. We only see that when we encounter the terrifying holiness of God. And the strange paradox of the human condition is that the holiness of God is the deepest desire of our souls, this mysterious deep blue light, and we find ourselves drawn toward it like a moth to a flame, and yet when we encounter it, the thing we are attracted to, we feel fear and revulsion and we want to get this holiness as far away from us as we can because we feel ourselves being undone by it, being crushed by the weight of the holiness of God. There's... A strange parallel to the story in the New Testament that you might remember from the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark that we went through last year. The disciples are on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is sleeping in the boat and then a huge storm arises out of nowhere and these experienced fishermen feel the nearness of drowning and death and they're screaming at Jesus, wake up, help us from this storm. And then Jesus stands up in the boat and he orders the wind and the waves, peace, be still. And immediately, the sea is as calm and still as glass. And then do you remember Peter's reaction to that? He falls on his knees and he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He thought he was afraid earlier when the storm arose. But now he's really afraid because before him what he thought was a prophet, an ordinary human being with some covering of the Holy Spirit is manifesting divine power. And when Peter encounters that divine power as it really is, it terrifies him and he realizes that he's a sinful man and he needs Jesus to get away from him, just like these Philistines and these men of Beth Shemesh needed the ark and the presence of God to get away from them before it destroys us all. But it turns out Jesus has been sent by God as his perfectly holy representative to fix this problem of people being unable to stand before a holy God, people being attracted and yet terrified of God's holiness. And this perfectly holy God-man goes to the cross. And on the cross, he takes on himself all the horrifying stain of our own sin, those things that prevent us from standing before the holiness of God. And then loaded down with our sin, he leaps, as it were, into the volcano of God's wrath to be consumed by him. And there is a marvelous exchange here because not only does Jesus take on himself our, ho- our unholiness, he gives us his holiness. So that wrapped in Jesus like a lead-lined garment, we can come and stand before a holy God and behold him. We can stand before a holy God because of Jesus. And stand before God, not as slaves, but as sons and daughters who are welcomed into the divine presence where the beauty of God is opened up for our eyes to gaze and gaze and gaze upon without fear of destruction. This is what God created us all to do, to be worshipers who look upon the face of God. Of God. And we do so with confidence and joy, yes, but also with a holy fear of God. The joy is an addition, but it does not take away our awareness of God's awesome, destructive holiness and as we grow in grace and we become more like jesus we see the holiness of god more and more as it is the book of hebrews chapter 13 speaks of us drawing near to god with confidence but also with reverent awe and fear because our god is a consuming fire Our God is a consuming fire. And coming together to worship God is a dangerous activity we are embarking on together. It is dangerous, and we should have crash helmets on and suited up for a dangerous encounter with God. And it's only the presence of Jesus protecting us that makes us safe before God. You know, the error of these priests, these Levites of Beth Shemesh, was this. They thought that just because God was their God, they could afford to be flippant with Him. That they could approach Him with casual hearts, without fear and reverence and awe. And they died because of it. And we are making the same error if we think that just because we belong to Jesus, That we can come to God casually, without awe and trembling, thinking that the terrifying presence of God is something that only strikes down his enemies. And it's not just as we come to worship, is it? It's as we live our lives. And we're called by Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit to live lives of reverent fear before God, confident that we are welcomed, that we are loved, that we are secure in Jesus, but also knowing that we have a God who is not to be trifled with. We're going to take some time now to confess our sin to God because we all have sin, things that are obvious to others, obvious to us, things that may be secret to others, and even secret to our own hearts. But I invite you now to join me in praying these words together that will be on this screen, and then we're gonna pause in silence to confess our own sin to God and ask for his mercy in Christ Jesus. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.